You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. He's always calling me Little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me. He's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? They're like this. Never hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? You may remember seven years ago when Donald Trump and Senator Marco Rubio were engaged in locker room talk over the size of Trump's hands. Now it's part of a case before the Supreme Court. Attorney Steve Elster says he has a free speech right to trademark the phrase Trump too small to use on T-shirts. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office disagreed, and it appears that the Supreme Court also disagrees. At oral arguments on Wednesday, justices across the ideological divide suggested that denying Elster a trademark for the phrase does not violate his free speech rights for a host of reasons. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson discussed the point of trademark law. And trademark is not about expression. Trademark is not about the First Amendment and and people's ability to speak. Trademark is about source identifying and preventing consumer confusion. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that not getting a trademark does not infringe on his speech. Because you're not talking about stopping the speech. You're talking about not receiving government protection for activity that you would like to heighten protection for. It doesn't stop you from selling. It doesn't stop you from selling anywhere as much as you want. Justice Neil Gorsuch pointed to history. But at the end of the day, um, it's pretty hard to argue that a tradition that's been around a long, long time, since the founding, you know, common law type stuff, is, is, is inconsistent with the First Amendment. And the chief justice said that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting the speech of other people. Because the whole point of the trademark, of course, is to prevent other people from doing the same thing. So if you win, you know, the slogan, Trump too small or whatever, other people can't use it, right? Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, tell us about the procedural background of this case. Mr. Elster sought trademark registration from the United States Trademark Office, and the trademark examiner handling the application denied it as a violation of Sections 
A and C of the Lanham Act, which is the trademark laws here in the United States. Mr. Elster then appealed within the trademark office, which confirmed the finding of a denial by the trademark examiner. And Mr. Elster took it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit here in D.C. The Federal Circuit unanimously reversed the decision of the trademark office on constitutional grounds. It found that at least as applied in this case, Section 1052C was unconstitutional in light of the First Amendment. And the trademark office thereafter decided that this was important enough to appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, which granted certiorari on the case, recognizing it was a very significant issue. So as Justice Sonia Sotomayor pointed out, you don't need a trademark to sell T-shirts with this phrase on it. In fact, they are selling T-shirts with this phrase on it online. So what would registration of the trademark give Elster? So this is an important issue that goes back to the passage of the Lanham Act in 1954 and its predecessors going back to the late 19th century. The argument is that there is a benefit to having a registered trademark in that your good or service and its identifier in the public mind is protected against copying by anyone else with respect to that same category of goods and services. So it's essentially a government benefit being conveyed upon the registrant. That position is not without detractors within the trademark field, but that is the way we, to this day, teach law students about trademark law, that if you jump through all the hoops to get a trademark, you receive this government blessing, this advantage in commerce, which is protection in a limited way for the trademark that you're using on your goods or services. Elster's lawyer told the court that the government's sole interest in denying the trademark is protecting the feelings of famous people. But that's not a legitimate reason to burden protected speech. How did his argument strike you? It sort of struck me as being weak in many ways. I thought it was extraordinarily weak. I mean, I was not there in person, and so there is a difference in listening to the recording of a Supreme Court argument to being there in person. But my reaction was that Mr. Elster's counsel did not do a very good job. It was pointed out in the press that this was his very first argument to the Supreme Court, but quite frankly, it came across as his first appellate argument <laughs> of any sort. And indeed, his response to this question was really a Hail Mary because he was unable to answer a previous question from Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan had asked him for any case that he could think of in which the conveying of a government benefit in a position-neutral viewpoint state had been held to be unconstitutional. You know, it was crickets in the room. He, he had nothing. <laughs> and Nothing except maybe a sinking feeling? Yeah, when Justice Mayor asked this, he went for his you know, press conference soundbite, uh, which was, oh, we can't be protecting the feelings of famous people. Well, you know, that's actually not what this statute is about. There is actually a different provision on that, and it helps sometimes to read the actual wording of a statute. Here, 15 U.S.C. 1052C essentially bars registration of a trademark that, quote, consists of or comprises a name 
portrait or signature identifying a particular living individual except by his written consent. This applies to everybody. It applies to you, applies to me, applies to listeners. A living person's name and likeness can't be used to promote another product. And this is fundamental to trademark law going back into the common law. It was known as passing off. You know, it was claiming that some famous person had blessed this product or was associated with it. Um, there's a separate provision regarding the name, signature, portrait of uh, presidents of the United States, which was not at issue here. And so in, it was very much sort of a, an absurd uh, response to Justice Sotomayor and really reflected a core problem with their argument, which Justice Thomas identified quickly at or argument. And he asked just straight out, what's the burden on free speech here? What is the burden on free speech? And really didn't get an answer because simple fact that, as you said, you people are already using this slogan everywhere. Just the fact that you don't get registration does not mean you can't use the slogan. And Mr. Elster himself has already been using it. All it means is that he's been denied the benefit of registration, which is the ability to exclude, in certain circumstances, third parties from using his slogan. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts, pointed out that giving him a trademark would have the effect of restricting speech by other people who want to use that slogan. And I think it's a fair point to make that, in effect, by granting the trademark registration here, because of the unique category in which it's sought, it really does limit other people's free speech. Because this slogan, Trump Too Small, is apparently commonly used by uh, folks who are opposing former President Trump's candidates. So, Terry, we always say you can't tell from the oral arguments how the court is going to rule. But it seemed to me that justices across the ideological spectrum were against giving this phrase trademark protection. I agree with that. My count was that there was a clear majority skeptical of granting registration. And I agree with your comment. It's hard to to always read oral arguments. But in this case, particularly the tonalities of the justices' questions really reflected pretty hardened positions, antagonistic to any attempt to register this. My count had Justice Thomas, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Chief Justice Roberts as all skeptical, if not outright, saying they were opposed to registration here. In addition, I had Justice Gorsuch and Alito disagreeing with Mr. Elster's counsel on different grounds. They historically are opposed to this notion that trademark confers a government benefit. But they would say that they were opposed to this for other reasons. So by my count, that's six justices who seem pretty firmly opposed to registration of this trademark. And I really couldn't count any of the other justices as being in favor of it. They just seemed to not express an opinion one way or the other. So six zippy is a pretty good starting point for the government here. So that leads me to the question, how did a unanimous panel of the federal circuit allow this trademark? June, we could spend a lot of time on decisions by the Federal Circuit, where I practice a lot, by the way, and the level of disrespect accorded to those decisions. 
by the Supreme Court of the United States. <laughs> True. I mean, the mere fact that this decision came out of the federal circuit probably starts off with, you know, points in the government's favor here because the Supreme Court just doesn't respect decisions, most significant decisions coming out of the federal circuit. The history of reversal is just phenomenal. And so, I mean, those of us who practice the federal circuit on a regular basis say, okay, you get granted, search the RE out of the federal circuit, you got a good chance of winning. And this is another great example. The, the federal circuit was 3-0 in favor of Mr. Elster. And their views were in large part based on an attempt to accord their decision with what they perceived the Supreme Court wanted based on prior cases involving the First Amendment trademark. And it looks like, once again, they just plain got it wrong. Coming up, a look at recent trademark decisions by the court. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I've been talking to intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catton Eugen Rosenman about Supreme Court oral arguments this week over trademarking the phrase Trump too small. So that brings us to this case is the latest to come before the court involving challenges to trademark denials. In the previous cases the most recent, the people seeking registration have won and the court has struck down parts of the trademark law in favor of more free speech protections. June, it's impossible to understand the Selster case without recognizing that it's the third in a trilogy of Supreme Court cases, all of which challenged um, provisions of the Lanham Act on First Amendment grounds. And this provision of the Lanham Act actually contains three distinct prohibitions on registration. The first one is trademarks that consist of or comprise immoral or deceptive or scandalous matter. The second provision prohibits trademark registration for marks that may disparage persons living or dead. And then the third one is the one actually in front of the court here, you know, the use of um, name, portrait, or signature identifying particular living individual. So a few years back in a case called Mattel versus Tan, there was an Asian American rock band that had sought trademark registration on the term slants, S-L-I-N-T-S, which the trademark office, I think, rightly recognized as a slur on Asian Americans, very offensive for an Asian Americans, and denied registration on the grounds that it was disparaging persons of Asian ethnicity. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reversed the trademark office and held this particular provision of 1052A unconstitutional in light of the First Amendment. The problem with that decision was that the court was, Justice Gorsuch did not participate for some reason in that decision. So you only had eight judges, and they split evenly four to four. I mean, there were a number of concurring opinions, but the core decisions were split four to four. And that split was centered on 
whether or not this sort of government-benefited speech should be subject to heightened scrutiny for First Amendment purposes. And whenever you have a type of speech that the government is trying to regulate and you apply heightened scrutiny, it's almost a certainty that it's going to be held to be unconstitutional. And Justice Kennedy, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan all felt that you applied heightened scrutiny here and therefore the provision was unconstitutional. Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Breyer thought that you did not apply heightened scrutiny, but it was still unconstitutional because there was no demonstrable benefit to the government to impose this sort of burden on free speech. So it was struck down at eight to zero, but with two really different bases for a decision. A couple of years later comes along a case, Iancu versus Brunetti, looking at the second prohibition here in 1052, which is immoral or scandalous trademarks. And in that case, we had a registrant trying to get a trademark registered in the term F-U-C-T. And the trademark office refused to accept that as immoral or scandalous. And there is a long history of variations of that particular mark being rejected. This one also went up to the Supreme Court. And again, it was struck down, and the particular provision was held unconstitutional in the First Amendment. But you had a combination of Justice Kagan, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, importantly, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Kavanaugh also had not participated because it wasn't on the court yet. And they made the argument that this was viewpoint-based discrimination by the government. The government was making a decision that the particular use of foul language or immoral words, as the statute says, was the government trying to dictate how people can speak. And therefore, that was unconstitutional. So if you look at those two cases, even though there was sort of a scattered uh, decision-making, you would have come away, as the Federal Circuit did, thinking that the Supreme Court dislikes limits on trademarks relating to some form of speech, even if that speech is really distasteful. And in both those cases, it was very distasteful. And yet the Federal Circuit clearly misread what had happened before, in part because you have this floating cast of justices with different points of view, and they just plain got it wrong here. How do you think the court's going to rule? I'm pretty confident, June, that the Federal Circuit decision is going to be reversed, and the court will then send it back for a decision on the TTAB ruling of non-registration. And at the end of the day, it may take a couple procedural hurdles, but this mark is not going to get registered. The real question is, what's the decision tree going to be like here? I think you will once again, as in the Tam case and the Brunetti case, have a fractured Supreme Court unless one of these justices, Justice Barrett, who really didn't give away where she was coming from, unless they they join with several other justices to create a five-judge majority. I think one of the core issues here is the position that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito have. They clearly express to the government lawyer that They don't believe in the government benefits argument. What they essentially said is they wanted the decision to be grounded in the history of trademark law in this country and pointed specifically to the historical protection that has been allowed for certain types of trademarks, such as geographic marks. 
the trademark law, the Lanham Act, accord special protection to various things. For example, the Olympics, the U.S. Olympic Committee gets special protection. And unless you're running a business within a certain distance of Olympia, Washington, you don't get to use the word Olympic in any sense. But those sorts of historically allowed prohibitions on trademarks. So I think that they're going to insist that the decision be grounded on the historical record of trademark law in this country, which, by the way, is consistent with their views that you have to look at the historical development of the law and find something back in the historical records that allows you to regulate. And here they would say that there's a historical recognition that the government has been allowed to regulate speech in the context of certain types of trademarks. And that's how they're going to ground their decision. And quite frankly, that might also pick up at least one other justice. So right there, you have three justices with this splintered decision. I think Chief Justice Roberts might also be inclined to something like that, whereas you're going to have this group, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, I think Justice Thomas, at a minimum, all arguing that this is not viewpoint discrimination and that the First Amendment only applies when it's in the context of viewpoint discrimination. I would like to see a clearer decision, and I may be proven wrong, but I think we're going to get one of these 432 or 333 type decisions like we've had so often of late. The interesting part of it is you and I have discussed the past June. It's in the intellectual property field, you don't see the ideological split that you do. I mean, if you look at all three of these cases, the so-called liberals and the so-called conservatives are all together in different blocks. So it's sort of interesting that respect. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Kattenmuchen Rosenman. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the government is trying to stop the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. I'm June Grosso and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. The U.S. crackdown on airline consolidation faces a new test this week as the government tries to stop JetBlue's $3.8 billion takeover of Spirit Airlines, arguing that the merger would reduce competition and boost fares for passengers. Trial started Tuesday before a federal judge in Boston, and it comes at a critical time for the industry, where domestic low-cost carriers have cut service as fares slide and travel slows. Joining me from Boston is Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Jennifer Ree, who's covering the trial. Jen, this isn't JetBlue's first run-in with antitrust regulators. Why is the government trying to stop this merger? Well, you know, the government really sees this as reducing output and increasing prices, or at least a deal that would have the potential to do that in the industry, because Spirit is what's considered an ultra-low-cost airline that offers a la carte options. And so if a consumer wants to fly and really get the very lowest price they can, they have the option of doing that on Spirit and not buying the extras, the food or the water or, or you know, the in, in-flight entertainment, whereas JetBlue has a different kind of a model. 
And so JetBlue, if it takes over Spirit, intends to change everything over to its own model. All the airplanes would be retrofitted, so there'd be fewer seats. So that means reduced output, and it would likely mean increased fares because JetBlue's average fares tend to be over Spirit's. So overall, Putting aside sort of the city routes in which these two airlines compete, overall, the Department of Justice is concerned about the removal of this option, of this a la carte, ultra low cost option that's in the marketplace. So JetBlue's lawyer said that it's the first time that the government has ever challenged a merger of two small airlines on antitrust grounds. The companies account for just 8% of industry revenue. So even after the merger, JetBlue's market share would rise to just 7% from 5%. I mean, is the government going after them because they haven't gone after the airlines before? I mean, this seems like they're, you know, trying to compete with the big airlines. Well, I have a couple things to say about that. I mean, I first, I think, look, that's a good argument by JetBlue, but I think it's sort of a red herring because at the end of the day, that national competition, that combined national share isn't really relevant to the antitrust inquiry because the antitrust inquiry looks at options for consumers and consumers that are trying to fly from, let's say, Boston to Santa Fe. They don't care about the fact that combined they're small nationally if they have a reduced option. When they're shopping for their flights and they have fewer options when they're shopping for that flight and now the prices have gone up, those consumers care about that. So really with airline deals, they have to be looked at from city to city and which airlines are competing on each of those routes. So it's kind of like a lot of mini mergers. And it's also not necessarily true that the Department of Justice hasn't challenged small deals. You know, there have been deals where an airline was trying to just buy a few slots let's say, at an airline, and the Department of Justice voiced some opposition, and the airline abandoned that deal. Well, what do you think JetBlue's best argument was in the openings? Well, I think that their best argument is, and they've done a good job with it, that, look, at the end of the day, we are going to increase competition because we have a really tough time fighting against the big legacy carriers, Delta, American, and United, and you can throw Southwest in there, too, that actually combined account for about 80% of air travel and cost a lot of money. We have lower fares than they do, and by increasing JetBlue, by making JetBlue a bigger, more viable competitor, we can exert more competitive pressure on those legacy airlines and it pulls down their prices. It's something that the Department of Justice has acknowledged called the JetBlue effect. And I think that the lawyers have so far, we're just at the beginning, effectively laid that out and made that argument. And I think it's a good argument because what it does is forces the judge to kind of say, which is the better side? You know, which is the bigger harm or the lesser harm? Is it better to remove this ultra low cost option for some real bargain conscious consumers? But end up, you know, exerting more of a competitive influence on the legacy carriers. Which side is stronger? Is part of the equation for the judge, I mean, from what I've read, if JetBlue loses in court, its Mm -hmm. survival becomes an open question. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing that, again, we're just at the beginning, right? So we have yet to get into really the bulk of this trial. But so far, what we've heard more is that it's actually spirit that's in a little bit of trouble, that they are not operating, they're operating at a loss right now, and that they have been for a couple years since COVID, and that they didn't quite have the bounce back that some airlines did and that they expected in the post-COVID travel boom. And so they're the ones that are struggling a little bit right now. You know, I haven't heard an argument 
in antitrust, there's something called a failing firm or a flailing firm argument that, you know, but for the deal, one of the companies will exit the market, and that would be a worse outcome than allowing a deal to go forward. I haven't really heard that yet, and those are very tough standards to meet. But because, you know, generally we do know that both Spirit and JetBlue are struggling a little bit now, I certainly think it's something the judge is going to take into account. Spirit tried to merge before? Was it Spirit that tried to merge with Frontier? Well, they were talking about, so they were balancing a Frontier offer versus a JetBlue offer. So originally they were in an offer with Frontier, but they were able to entertain a superior offer. And they judged JetBlue's offer when it came in later to be a superior offer. So they were looking at both at one point and ended up going with JetBlue. And JetBlue, what happened with its alliance with American Airlines? So the alliance they had in the Northeast with American was challenged by the Department of Justice, and they uh, it went to trial, and the companies lost, and they were ordered to unwind that alliance. I went to that trial, and I was a little surprised by that verdict. I did think that the alliance would be pared back a little bit by the judge, that some aspects of it might be pared back, but that they'd be able to keep at least the core, sort of the code sharing, but the judge actually said they have to unwind it completely. Now, I think American has gone ahead and appealed that, but JetBlue was able under their agreement to walk away because they had hit their end date. And so JetBlue did walk away from that agreement. It can't walk away from this agreement, can it? It has a breakup fee? There's a breakup fee. So this agreement has an end date that I believe is in March. The way that works is neither company can can walk away yet without being in breach of the agreement unless there's some legal impediment to them closing as of that their end date you know once an end date hits and they're not closed and usually they aren't closed by an end date because there's still some legal impediment to closing at that point either side has the option to walk away there is a breakup fee if this deal fails because antitrust got in its way then you hit that end date and you still haven't gotten cleared. There tend to be a couple different options. I mean, the companies can renegotiate. That's out there. They can extend that end date. They can even renegotiate terms. But Spirit also has the option, as of that end date, of choosing not to renegotiate or extending it, walking away and collecting their breakup fee. So if an airline could have a persecution complex, it seems like JetBlue (laughs) would have one. It's the second time that antitrust enforcers have stepped into a JetBlue deal. Why is the government going after JetBlue when it's number six trying to compete with the four biggest airlines? You know, I think that it's the types of deals, uh, essentially, that JetBlue has, has entered into. So, you know, if you looked at the deal with American the partnership deal, it could have been a different kind of partnership. Um, JetBlue does have a partnership with Alaska Airlines out in the West that had different sorts of terms. And and I think that the partnership in the Northeast went a little bit too far. They were also collaborating on capacity and they were collaborating on revenue rather than just code sharing. And I think that that was kind of what doomed that. I think that if it had been a more limited partnership, it may have had less opposition from the Department of Justice and and maybe, you know, no lawsuit at all. So I think that was one problem. And I also think it's possible that there are other airlines that JetBlue might be able to acquire and with some divestitures clear through the DOJ. But I think this one is particularly sensitive for the agency because it does hit low consumer passengers. 
So let's talk about the first witnesses who've testified. Yeah, the Spirit CEO was the very first witness, and that's been most of trial so far. And another employee of Spirit testified today. Primarily so far, we've heard from the CEO, and it was a lot about Spirit and Spirit's profitability, um, the negotiations with Frontier and the negotiations with JetBlue and why they decided to go with JetBlue and what was Spirit talking about when they themselves publicly said that they thought there could be antitrust problems with a a JetBlue Spirit combination, and they were concerned about that. Why did they say that in public? (laughs) Because at the time, they were preferred the frontier offer. Because it's like, I'm going to commit a crime, perhaps. Well, you know, according to them, they, they weren't really saying, hey, this is an illegal deal. They were saying, we just have some concerns about regulatory pushback, and we would need JetBlue. I mean, this is what they're saying now. We would need JetBlue to come up with a better commitment to us about what they'd be willing to do to resolve concerns of the DOJ. A larger commitment in terms of what they'd be willing to divest. We need a bigger breakup fee to protect us from risk, etc. So they're kind of saying, well, look, it was a bargaining chip in order to get some better terms out of JetBlue. And they did propose divestitures, didn't they? But the federal government didn't think they went far enough? Right. They've they've proposed divestitures, I think, in Newark, LaGuardia, Boston, and Fort Lauderdale. And these are, you know, some really big airports for JetBlue and for Spirit, the Spirit's focus airports and JetBlue's focus airports. The agency doesn't think it goes far enough. They think that there are other problematic airports and other problematic routes. And I think the agency is also concerned about routes where the companies don't overlap at all, routes that Spirit flies that JetBlue doesn't fly, because in those cases, that's where JetBlue would retrofit those Spirit planes, turn them into the JetBlue-type plane and the JetBlue model, and theoretically, for those routes, consumers would lose that ultra-low-priced option. So, Jen, is the only resolution of this either to stop the merger or to allow it to go forward? Is there any middle ground that the judge could order? You know, I don't think so. I think at this point, more divestitures doesn't do the trick. Um, I think that this is basically either the judge is going to rule against the airlines or it's going to rule for the airlines. If it rules for the airlines, they'll be able to go ahead and close the deal. Uh, If it rules against the airlines, I think they'll probably appeal. But I don't really think there's some other remedy or concessions they could throw out there that would lead to some resolution or a settlement. And how long is the trial expected to last? It's expected to be finished on December 5th. It's kind of long, actually, for a Department of Justice permanent injunction merger trial, but it's not going consecutive days. There are a couple days in there the judge has to skip. He's only going up till 1 o'clock every day, and then Thanksgiving's in the middle there. So I think probably we're going to get a ruling in January. Originally, the judge said he's really going to try hard to rule in December, but that was when the trial was supposed to start much earlier in October. It got pushed back a few times. So at this point, I think probably January is likely. Thanks so much, Jen. Enjoy Boston. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. For more of Jen's analysis, you can go to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.